A video version of this podcast is available at AboundingJoy.com and also on our YouTube pages. Hey, my name's Steve Hall, and I want to thank you for joining our Bible study today. Before we get into today's Bible study, I would like to invite you to come to check out our Standing Firm Bible study class in person. We're at Fairview Baptist Tabernacle in Sweetwater, Tennessee. We meet in the downstairs fellowship hall of the auditorium building at 10.15 a.m. on Sunday mornings immediately after the 9 o'clock worship service. Here's a little map for you. See the little red lines? (laughs) Notice if you're in the auditorium, just follow those red arrows. If you're in the back, go straight down that hallway behind you to the stairwell. If you're near the front of the auditorium, you can go out the left door, and I mean left as you're sitting in the auditorium looking toward the pulpit and the choir. Go to your left, go out that door, all the way down to the end of the hall, keep to your left, all the way down to the stairwell, and then turn right and go down the stairwell. We meet in the fellowship hall around the tables near the kitchen downstairs. If you have trouble with stairs, there are men driving golf carts near the entrance to the auditorium building at the crossover there who will be glad to give you a ride to a door that enters the building on our level, so you won't have to do any steps at all. We're a co-educational class, men and women both invited. We're for all ages, doesn't matter how old or how young. Children and youth are certainly welcome, but some children and youth actually prefer to go to the children and youth classes, which meet at the same time we meet, more on their level. Dress, totally casual. Class members are certainly encouraged to participate in the Bible study, ask questions, engage in conversation. But listen, if you happen to be kind of shy, we promise we're not going to embarrass you. We're not going to ask you to read. We're not going to ask you to pray. We're not going to ask you any specific questions directed to you. It isn't unusual for class members who are kind of shy just to not say anything at all once class gets started. So that's your choice. So I'm just saying, please don't feel intimidated if you happen to be the shy type. I know sometimes the first meeting is kind of tough for the shy people. But there's never been a time when it's been more important for God's people to meet in small Bible study fellowship groups in order to encourage each other. We've got to stand firm in his truth. We've got to stand firm on his word. These are very confusing days we're living in. You know that. So we'd love for you to join us and just see for yourself what God's doing in our class. If you'd like more information, go to AboundingJoy.com. There's the web address right there on the screen. You can click on the Standing Firm Bible Class menu item when you get there. You may want to hit pause right now or do a screen save to get, make sure you get the spelling right, but you can learn more information about us there. Now, here's today's Bible study. I hope and pray it helps you grow stronger in our Lord Jesus Christ and in your knowledge of His Word and of His will for your life. Well, hey guys, thanks for joining me in Bible study again today. Over the past several weeks, if you've been with us, we've learned that Paul's introduction, just the introduction to his letter to the Romans, we're talking about the first seven verses, that introduction contains an amazing amount of theological truth. We've been discovering some of that over the past weeks. Spent quite a bit of time in that introduction. I think it's appropriate, don't you? It's a letter that's going to turn out to be what many consider to be the most profound theological piece of writing that's ever been written. So it's appropriate that it has such a profound introduction. Today we're going to pick it up at verse 8, and we're going to make a little better time now. We're going to read this next paragraph, and today we're going to look at all eight of these next verses, 8 through 15. Beginning in verse 8, this is God's Word. 
First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Notice how Paul encourages these Christians in verse 8. He says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Interesting. He's encouraging these people by reminding that people all over the empire, all over the Roman Empire, they're talking about the faith of these Roman Christians. Of course, they're in the hot seat, aren't they? They're right there, the center of all the action, center of all the sin in Rome. But when you think about what he's saying here, you may kind of think of a possible problem. How can anybody possibly know about somebody else's faith? I mean, can I look into your heart and to your mind, see your faith? Can you look into my heart and my mind and see my faith? <laughs> no, of course not. That's why, by the way, when we lead someone to trust Jesus for the first time, we lead someone maybe to pray and ask Jesus Christ to come into their lives and be their Lord and Savior. We will often report that by saying only God knows their hearts. And we have to remind ourselves they may be saying all the right words, <laughs> but only God knows what's going on in their hearts. Right. Time will tell. That's what caused John. You remember the Apostle John who wrote the first letter of John as well. He wrote this, they went out from us. Some people did, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. So he's saying some of them said the right words, <laughs> but they're obvious their faith wasn't real, obviously. So uh, they had to deal with that in the first century. When he says in verse eight, your faith is proclaimed and I think, wait a minute, faith is invisible. But it reminds me of a phrase Paul's already used back in verse 5 in the introduction. Paul said he'd been gr given grace and apostleship to bring about, you remember what he said? To bring about the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith. In other words, true faith produces obedience. True faith results in a changed life. Reminds us what James said. You remember we've looked at this verse before too, but he said, you want to, be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Because faith itself, of course, is something invisible. We can't see it. We, we respond to God's call. We put our trust in Jesus with our mind, with our heart, with our will, our spirit. But faith is something inside us, right? It's an inner quality. But as we've seen already, faith always produces something. We put our faith in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in our hearts, right? He comes to live inside us. And what does he begin to do? He begins to produce fruit. If we don't quench him, if we don't grieve him, he begins to produce fruit. And that 
That fruit is how the whole world knows about the faith of these Roman Christians. God's been producing fruit through these people, and the whole world has seen it. There's something else interesting I want us to see here in this verse. Did you notice Paul did not write, first, I want to thank you, Roman Christians, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. He didn't say it that way. He said, first, I thank who? (laughs) You see it. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Now, he's encouraging these Roman Christians, no question about it. But he's thanking God because he knows that the reason they are producing this fruit that's being noticed by the whole world is because and only because God is working in them, through them. So Paul is thanking God for what God is doing through them. I think it's important that we get that straight. We need to learn that from Paul. You remember what he told the Philippians? He said, it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God gives you the will to do it, and God enables you to do what he's intending for you to do, to obey him, to follow him, to bring him glory. Right of the book of Hebrews said it this way, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, listen to this, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, look at the next three words, working in us, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Not to us, to him. He's doing the work. So that's why John portrays, you remember in the book of Revelation, same man that wrote the letter to First John, same man that wrote the gospel of John, wrote the book of Revelation. And he portrays the 24 elders in Revelation as casting their crowns down before the throne. Remember this? The 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. These 24 elders realize that the only reason they have crowns is because God chose to use them. God enabled them to do good things, so they've got these crowns, but the glory really belongs to the Lord. They understand that, so they just give the crowns back. (laughs) He deserves all the glory. So Paul's definitely encouraging them. Don't, Don't get me wrong here. He's encouraging them but it's encouraging in the right way. This is the way we need to be encouraged. This is the way we need to encourage people. The thanksgiving goes to God. God deserves the thanks. God's been working through them. Now, having said that, don't get me wrong here. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to imply that if somebody says thank you to us, that we ought to rebuke them and say, no, you don't be thanking me, you don't be thanking God. There's nothing wrong with gently and graciously turning attention back to God. That's a good thing. But sometimes people tell us that we did something good. They're trying to encourage us. Usually they're not trying to puff us up. They're just trying to encourage us, right? They're just expressing some gratitude, appreciation. They're encouraging. That's a good thing. God wants us to encourage each other. All I'm saying is watch out for what the enemy will try to do with that if we're not careful. He likes to turn encouragement into a source of pride. You can see that, of course. 
you know, if he can get me or any of us to siphon off some of the glory, all of which belongs to God, it all belongs to God. So if he can get me to take some of it for myself, when somebody encourages me or somebody encourages you, or somebody gives us Thanksgiving, they, they thank us for what we've done. I'm just saying maybe sometimes what we need to say is something like, yeah, I really appreciate you saying that. You really are an encourager. It means a lot to me. But I think both of us really know it's God. It's not really me. If, if, if something good happened here, God's at work. So let's give him all the glory. Sometimes, I'm not saying you have to say that every time. Sometimes it's appropriate just, just, just to simply think it. You know, We need to think it at least. But sometimes we can just say, thank you. I appreciate you saying that. You're an encourager. And then with a silent prayer, Lord, you and I both know that you're the one who did this. All the glory goes to you. I'm not taking it from me. And then it's good to look for ways to share that with other people at the same time. Graciously, kindly. I'm not trying to make them feel bad or anything. Appreciate the encouragement. And, and, and on the other hand, the other side of this coin, when we're the one trying to encourage somebody else, I mean, I'm not telling you you have to do it this way, but I think it's really good when you're trying to encourage somebody to include the phrase, something like this, you know what, God really used you today. Something like that. You know what, God's really working through you. You know what, God's speaking through you to help me to encourage you. God's really used you. God helped you say just what I needed to hear. That way you're giving encouragement to that person, but you're recognizing God's the one doing it, giving the glory to God. I think most people appreciate that. Verse 9, for God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Of course, Paul has never been to Rome yet at this point. He's had reports of what God's doing through these Roman Christians. He's praying for them, and he tells them he's praying for them without ceasing. He's not quitting. It's not a one-time prayer. He's continuing. And you notice what he's praying for. He's praying that God will work out a way for him to get there. He wants to be with them. He wants to see them. He wants to encourage them. You may remember it was about four years after he wrote this letter, these words that we're reading right now, that he really did finally get to Rome. It took him four more years. And it probably wasn't the way he had hoped to get there. Because when he finally got there, he was a prisoner. You remember that? God did answer his prayer. God told him later, said, you're going to go to Rome, Paul. It's just that Probably not exactly the way Paul had hoped. God had a plan. But Paul might have been a little disappointed in the way it worked out at first. Because when he got there, he didn't have the freedom to just go all over the city preaching the gospel. No, 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 no. But he did have the freedom to witness to Roman soldiers who were guarding him. He was under house arrest. He couldn't just go anywhere he wanted to, but people could come to him. And he got to talk to him about Jesus there. And maybe, when you take the long-range view of things, most important of all, maybe, is God used Paul during that first Roman imprisonment to write some very important parts of God's Word. The letter to the Ephesians, the letter to the Philippians, the letter to the Colossians. Aren't those awesome letters? Have you read those lately? I mean, those are some of the most awesome words in the Bible. And, of course, the little letter to Philemon. They're all written during his first Roman imprisonment. So God had a plan. God always has reasons for what seems to us to be disappointments and delays. God's always going to accomplish his purpose if we'll just have the attitude Paul did. You know, we make our request known to him. God commands us to do that. We need to pray. And then we just say, okay, Lord, I've made my request known. I'm just going to worship you. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to praise you. 
to, that you're going to just use me to get glory the best way possible for your own glory. And I'll be happy with that, Lord. I'm just going to take joy in the fact that I know I can trust you to do it right. may not be the way I was wanting you to do it. may be the way I was hoping you would do it. Maybe, maybe not. But, it, but in any case, I can trust him to do it right. There's a similarity here also to what he wrote to the Colossians. As far as we know, he had never been to Colossae either. So there's a parallel here. But he prayed for them too. And listen to his words to the Colossians. You remember this prayer? It's an awesome prayer. And so from the day we heard, heard what? What's he talking about? Well, in verse 4, this chapter 1 of the Colossians, he said he'd heard of their faith. He'd heard of their love. You see the parallels, don't you, to the, to the letter of the Romans? But look at what he, look at what he prayed for them. He tells them exactly what he's been praying for them. He says, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, God's will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Isn't that an important prayer for us today? So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Awesome prayer, isn't it? Worth memorizing, I think. That's a prayer. Listen, that's a prayer Paul prayed for people he had not even met. He, he, He knew them by reputation, but he didn't know them face to face. It's a prayer we can pray. God put it in his word so we could pray it ourselves, not only for ourselves, but but for others. That's what Paul was doing. It's an awesome prayer. We all need to be filled with the knowledge of his will, don't we? (laughs) We all need that spiritual wisdom and understanding, don't we? Especially in these days, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, especially in the culture we're in right now, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in our knowledge of him, strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might. For endurance and patience, perseverance, staying in the battle. (laughs) Well, I'm sure Paul prayed for something similar for these Romans. And we can pray the same prayer. That's why God put it in his word. It's certainly, certainly a prayer that pleases God. Certainly a prayer that he wants to answer because he put it in his word. One of the reasons that I have a list of our class members online is so we can use it to pray for each other. We need to be doing what Paul was doing. He set an example for us. And, and if you've not been doing it, I consider you to at least consider using that list of members as a prayer list. But listen, let's be honest here for just a minute, okay? I'm going to be honest with you. Isn't it amazing how hard that is? That shouldn't be that hard, should it? I mean, to pray. <laughs> Do you feel like you pray enough? Be honest. <laughs> I'm not sure I've ever met anybody who felt like they prayed enough. Have you? I mean, most of us feel the same way. Why? I think it proves the reality of our spiritual warfare, guys. We're in a spiritual war. Because logically, it just doesn't make sense that it should be so hard to make time to pray. I mean, we know God clearly commands us to pray over and over and over. Look at these commands. Pray without ceasing. That's pretty clear and concise. Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. 
The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. I mean, it's so clear. He, and he commands it. And all the way through the scriptures, you find the importance of prayer and examples of prayer. Why do we do so little of it? Well, it seems to me it's either because we're like the pagans and we really don't believe it. We don't believe our prayers matter at all. And I don't think that's true for most of you. If you, if you love Jesus, you know God answers prayer. You know the truth. You know God works through our prayers. That's what he's chosen to do. The other option is what I said. We're engaged in serious spiritual warfare, and we tend to underestimate the effectiveness of our enemy's resistance to our prayers. Satan hates it when God's kids get on their knees, when God's kids start seriously praying. Satan will look for all kinds of ways to resist that. And it's amazing how many urgent things he can put in our minds that make us feel like, well, yeah, I need to pray, but maybe later. I'm just overwhelmed right now. And we rarely get around to praying like we should. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? You look back and you say, wow, how little time I've spent in real prayer, serious prayer. And of course, sometimes Satan's whispering, you know, this isn't doing any good, don't you? You realize how many times you've asked the Lord for something and he didn't do anything. He didn't give you anything at all. God didn't hear your prayers. <laughs> he whispers that to you. Hasn't he? Guys, this is one of those things we're going to have to trust God's time. If we believe God, we got to just keep praying. No matter what we see or don't see. That was the purpose of Jesus' parable about the widow and the unjust judge. I, I gave you the first verse of that a little earlier. He, he said, you mustn't stop praying just because you don't see the results that you'd like to see as soon as you'd like to see them. Prayer is a long-range thing. A friend was sharing with me just the other day how long one of his friends prayed for him over a period of many years before God finally got his attention and brought him to the Lord. Amazing. He didn't quit, though. The guy didn't quit praying. That was the point. And one reason for Paul's usefulness to the Lord was his prayer life. He knew the importance of praying. <laughs> now, if it wasn't just me here by myself talking to you like this, if, if we were a group and we were sitting around a room right now, I think it'd be a great time for us to just share with each other some of the things that we've learned, some of the things that maybe have helped us have a better prayer life, at least from one time or another in our lives. You know, for example, I'll just throw out a few examples, but for many of us, it's really important to have a specific time to pray. If we don't have a specific time, it tends to get pushed off, pushed off, pushed back, pushed back over and over. Another thing that can make a big difference in our prayer life is having lists, but you can make tons of lists and never pray over them, so they don't do much good if you don't use them, actually, so there's got to be a way to make sure you use them. We've got phones now that have apps that can help us with that. Google Docs can help us. You know, you could, you could, if you've got Google Assistant, you could ask Google Assistant to remind you to take some time to pray at a time when you feel like you need to be praying. Yeah, something you could do. Or you could put a little, tape a little note on your watch. I did that when I was younger. I had a little note on my watch that said, pray. And so when I look at the time, I'd think, oh, yes, Lord, that reminds me. <laughs> and I'd talk to the Lord a minute. You know, that would be one way. Um, you can, you can put prayers on Google Docs, now, if you do and you open them in the app, this won't work. But if you open them in, in Google Chrome, it'll work, the same, same document. But you can tell Google to read it to you. So while you're going down the road, you can have Google reading your prayer list back to you. And you can pray for them while you're driving. I mean, there, there are lots of different ways you can pray. But we need to be working on figuring out a way and a time to make sure we're spending plenty of time talking to the Lord. When Vicki and I are on our way to work uh, in the morning or school, 
We've got about a 30 minute drive and we and we make sure before we do anything else, talk about anything else or read anything else, we spend some time in God's word and some time praying about some things that are on our hearts. Paul made a big deal out of prayer and he's praying God's going to work it out for him to get to come to be with him in Rome. And eventually he will. In verses 11 and 12, he tells them and us why he's praying this. Look at verse 11. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I don't know about you, but when I see the word spiritual gift, spiritual gift, my mind immediately goes to Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, where God tells us a lot about the gifts of the Spirit. And many years ago, I discovered a study of spiritual gifts that made a lot of sense to me. I'd love to share it with you. It's on my website if you want to check it out. But I led a, a study of spiritual gifts in another church where, where I was a member and eventually made those available as a set of audio podcasts, which you can find. But someday I'd like to share some of that with you. But but and we're talking about the way the gifts are described in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 and Romans 12. But to summarize it real briefly, I'm kind of chasing a rabbit here, but stay with me. I tend to believe that when we're first saved, the Holy Spirit comes in to live in our hearts, that he gives every one of us a spiritual gift that we call a motivational spiritual gift. And I believe those gifts show up supernaturally in our lives. It's a supernatural empowerment. It's a supernatural energizing of our lives so that we live our lives in a way that God intends for us to live them to primarily serve him in the body of Christ. Now, it's different for every one of us. So some people have the gift of giving. Some people have the gift of serving or showing mercy or exhorting or administering and organizing or teaching or prophesying, not in the sense of foretelling the future, but in the sense of proclaiming God's truth with conviction and power. So I believe God gives us one of those gifts. And then I believe God adds to those gifts other gifts that are mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, gifts of ministry, gifts of manifestation gifts as we serve him and as their need comes up, he uses those gifts. But having said all of that and chased that rabbit, let's get back to the the original line of thinking here. I think it's likely that Paul may not have had those kinds of gifts in mind at all right here. I could be wrong. He may have. But I think here he's talking about the idea of a spiritual gift the same way we might use the word blessing. He wants to be with them so the Lord can give them some spiritual blessings as gifts. These are gifts from God, but they're just general spiritual blessings. Think about this for a minute. Again, I could be wrong about this, but think about this. Can you think of someone, maybe more than one, maybe some people uh, in your life, and you know they really love the Lord and they walk with the Lord and they study God's word and they're serious about their relationship with him. They're serious about their walk with him. And when you know that you're going to get to spend some time with that person, your heart kind of leaps for joy. You say, oh, oh, good. I know this is going to be a blessing. I know this person. I know what I know that when I spend time with them, I'm going to really receive a spiritual gift from God, a spiritual gift. They're going to lift my spirit. They're going to encourage me. You're eager to hear what God's doing in their lives. That encourages you. You know, they're going to be eager to hear what God's doing in your life. They inform you of what they've learned in their recent Bible studies. They talk about what they've been studying and what they've been thinking about, maybe some theological issues. They're alert to how God may want us to live by his word in our particular moment of time. They make you want to stay in the battle. And and you're trying to encourage them to stay in the battle, too. You know anybody like that? Notice also in verse 12, Paul says that goes both ways. 
he knows they're going to be uplifted and encouraged by his presence with them and, and, and the conversations they have. He also knows, and he wants them to know this, he's going to be uplifted and encouraged and taught things by their presence with him. This isn't a one-way street. Paul does not feel so spiritually superior to them that he doesn't think he has anything to learn from them. He doesn't see himself as on some kind of spiritual pedestal and everybody else is at his feet. No, no, no. He knows they're going to encourage him. They're going to uplift him. They're going to teach him some, some, some things too. It's going to work both ways. It's a beautiful thing. Verse 13, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as the rest of the Gentiles. Paul's eager to get to Rome. So far, God's not allowed him to get there. But it's important to Paul that these Romans know his heart. He's not deliberately avoiding them. He wants to be with them. He's confident that God will produce some fruit through his ministry there. We're just second guessing here, but it's at least conceivable that these Roman Christians, some of them may have said, ah, Paul didn't care about us. He's too busy with the other churches. He's not coming here. You know, he never does come here. <laughs> and Paul was like, I'm wanting to. I want to get there. <laughs> and eventually he did. He's eager to see some fruit. He's eager to see some harvest. Paul knows he's given his life to Christ. Paul knows that God uses him over and over and over to produce results. So Paul's got not Paul confidence. He's got Christ confidence. Don't consider that self-confidence. It isn't. It's not self-confidence at all. It's Christ's confidence. We don't need self-confidence. <laughs> In spite of what the world may tell you, you don't need self-confidence, but you do need Christ's confidence. Verse 14, I'm under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. The Greek word here, under obligation, literally means debtor. It's a noun. Paul says, I'm a debtor. It's the noun form of the verb Jesus used when he gave this parable to the Pharisee named Simon. He said a certain moneylender had two debtors. You remember that parable? One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Debtor. Now, I want to ask you a question. I don't want you to answer out loud. I just want you to think about it. Think about this. To whom is Paul in debt? Now, be careful here, but think about it. To whom is Paul in debt? I think some of us would have a knee-jerk reaction to say, well, he's in debt to God. <sighs> but we've got to be very careful what we mean by that and how we say that. Let me tell you why I'm saying that. We've got an illustration in Evangelism Explosion. I've talked with you some about that before, a way of sharing the gospel that kind of parallels this. But let's suppose that you were to give me a really nice gift. And when I receive it, I said, whoa. This is amazing. This is wonderful. I am so in debt to you for this gift. I'm going to pay you back as quick as I can. <laughs> what would you say? You say, wait, wait a minute, Steve. I don't think you get it. <laughs> I don't think you understand the concept of gift here. This is a gift. You can't pay me back. You don't owe me anything. <laughs> On the other hand, suppose I was telling you how difficult things had been for me and how hard up I am financially and that I'm having trouble paying my bills. And you were to say, I tell you what, Steve. If it'll help you out some, I can loan you $5,000. And I say, whoa, it's amazing. Thank you so much. I'm in debt to you. I'll pay you back for this. What would you say then? You say, you're darn right. You'll pay me back. This is a loan. It's not a gift. You better make sure you understand that. 
Yeah, if you give me a gift, I wouldn't be in debt to you, right? You give me a loan, that's a totally different issue. So we got to realize that salvation is a gift from God, right? We're saved by His grace, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. It's a gift. So we must never say, thank you, God, I'm going to pay you back for this. That'd be foolish. We say, thank you, God. I know your salvation is an amazing free gift. I could never pay you back. And it would be foolish for me to try to pay you back. I would be negating grace. But Lord, I can give you a gift too. I'll just give myself to you. (laughs) So Paul's debt, in the sense of having a debt, is probably not to God. In fact, Paul makes it clear. His debt is to the Greeks and to the barbarians and to the wise and to the foolish. But then we scratch our heads and say, wait a minute, how can that be true? They haven't loaned anything to Paul, have they? What does he mean in debt to them? Here's here's how I think that works. Back in the Old Testament, in 2 Kings chapter 6, we read the account of Ben-Hadad. He was the king of Syria, and he set up a siege around Samaria and cut off their supplies. And it led to a horrific, horrific time of famine. It was awful. They didn't have any food at all. Some of the people there in Samaria had begun to practice cannibalism and were eating their own kids. Awful time. Well, during that siege and during that famine, there were four lepers. Of course, they were living outside the city. They were not allowed into the city. So they're outside the city, but they were inside the siege line. So they were starving too. So these lepers decided, hey, we're going to die. We might as well approach the Syrians. They may kill us. But we're dying anyway, and who knows? Maybe one of them will take pity on us and give us a little food of some kind, some garbage or something. So they decided boldly to just approach the Syrians. And when they got there, there was no one there. And we learn in Scripture, God tells us that during the night before, God had caused these Syrians to hear the sound of horses and chariots, and they thought Samaria had somehow been able to call for help from the Hittites or the Egyptians, and the Syrian soldiers ran in abject terror for their lives. They abandoned their camps, they abandoned their supplies, and they ran. And these four lepers just happened to come into camp at that time, and there they are with all this food, and not to mention silver and gold and other stuff they'd left behind, and they're just helping themselves. And then we get down to 2 Kings chapter 7, verse 9, and we read this. Then they said to one another, we're not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we're silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, come, let's go and tell the king's household. Now, I know they were partly motivated just by fear of some kind of punishment, but they realized they had been incredibly blessed, unexpectedly, with free food when they were about to starve to death. And they realized there was a city over there full of people not far away. They're starving to death. And they think, we've got a debt to those people. We can't keep these to ourselves. Wouldn't be right. We've got to go tell the city the good news. And Paul feels the same way. To Greeks, to barbarians, to wise, to foolish, he said, everybody, all human beings. Greeks probably referred to the cultured people of his day. The cultured people spoke Greek. They were the elite. They were the highly educated. Barbarians, uh, they were the great unwashed. The deplorables, as Hillary Clinton might call them, those with no credentials. The wise and the foolish as well. Some people are truly wise. Some people claim to be wise. They're not wise. Some people are actually fools. We're going to talk about that a little bit later in this chapter also. He's going to get to that in verse 22. But Paul feels indebted to them all. Why? Because he 
has received an incredible free gift of God's grace. And it would be wrong for him not to share it with other people. He knows that he's in debt to these people. I'll give you another example. If you had a medical issue and you find a doctor or a medicine that helps you and you get past it. And then later on, you're talking to someone else who seemed to have the same problem you had. Don't you feel a kind of obligation to them? I mean, you realize things may be different. It may not work for them, but you feel obligated to share the good news. Hey, this made a difference in my life. I mentioned to Michael the other day that I was having some serious issues with getting enough sleep. And, and he could identify because he'd been there with, and he found something that helped him. So he said, you might want to try this. And by the way, I did try it. And by the way, it's helping. Thank you, Michael. <laughs> but God gave Paul the gospel. And he's given Paul an understanding of spiritual truths that these Romans may not have it all understood yet. They may not have figured it all out yet. And God's, and God's given Paul this sense of obligation, this sense of indebtedness to them to share with them what God's shown him. So in verse 15, he says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. This is one of those verses that remind us the gospel is not just for our initial salvation. Sometimes we think the gospel, oh yeah, that's what they told me when I got saved. Our initial justification. And then we just kind of leave the gospel behind to go on to bigger and better things in God's word. No, 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 no. If the gospel only related to our initial salvation, those Romans could say to Paul, Paul, we don't need you to preach the gospel to us, man. We've already heard it. We're already saved, man. We don't need that. But the gospel is not just that we are saved by grace through faith. That's true, and that's awesome. But as awesome as it is, the gospel is we live by grace through faith. It's not an event that happened back there. It's every day from here on out, God's grace being lavished on us so that we can live by grace through faith till the end. So Paul's eager to preach to them how to live out the gospel in their day-to-day walk with the Lord. We need to be doing the same thing. The word preach, by the way, when we hear it, we usually think of some orator maybe standing behind a pulpit in front of a large crowd, maybe doing a little shouting and yelling to make his point, like I do sometimes. But in the Bible, it just means to proclaim the good news. That's all it means. It can be one-on-one. You remember when God sent Philip to the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8? They were having a one-on-one conversation. Two men, one-on-one. Look at verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he preached the gospel. He told him the good news about Jesus. Same word in the Greek. This translation says he told him the good news about Jesus, but it's the same word preached it's in, in the Greek. So when Philip told the Ethiopian eunuch about Jesus, he was preaching the gospel. When you and I tell others about Jesus, we're preaching the gospel. And I hope that's our aspiration to live day by day till the end of our lives, to live the gospel by grace through faith, to walk by grace through faith until God says it's time to come home. And that while we're at it, in realizing we're in debt to share that with others too so that they might experience the same grace through faith for the glory of Jesus. And it also, in the process of bringing great glory to Him, you know what it does for us? It brings us peace. It brings us joy. brings us a sense of fulfillment. We ought to be like Paul. We ought to be eager to preach the gospel. We'll stop here. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time in your word. Thank you for what we've learned in this incredibly important passage of Romans. Lord, we do want to be found faithful. We want to bring you glory. We want you to have all the glory. We don't want to siphon off any of it. It all belongs to you. But we do want to be useful instruments in your hands to share the good news with others. We realize we're under obligation. We are under debt. So I pray you'd help us to sense that. 
And Lord, we realize that a key element in, in accomplishing this and bringing you this glory is our prayer lives. And most of us, Lord, will have to confess our sin of prayerlessness. Most of us realize we let Satan win way too many battles when it comes to our prayer life. And it embarrasses us. But Lord, we know that it doesn't have to go on that way. We can win those battles because you've given us the armor. You've given us the weapons to overcome the enemy. Help us to internalize just how valuable and important it is for us to pray for each other. Thank you, Lord, for giving us your word. Use it to change us and to make us more like Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.